Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to On Communication, the podcast brought to you by the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University. I'm your host, James Loss, and I'm here to bring you in-depth conversations with faculty and friends of the college. We like to talk about journalism, advertising, public relations, creative media, and so much more. Just as long as we all get to learn something new, and I am sure you will. So once again, welcome, and we are so glad you decided to join us today. On today's episode, we will be discussing the many applications of video games in areas such as education, communication, and creation. Video games easily fall under the creative media department of our college, as they compose an immense and multifaceted industry. Although video games have received much criticism over the years, being cited as time wasters or brain cell killers, there are far too many overlooked benefits and opportunities for anyone with a creative hair on their heads. In order to explore the ever-growing world of video games, I'm joined by Dr. Nick Bowman, PhD and Associate Professor of Journalism and Creative Media Industries in the College of Media and Communication. Dr. Bowman has published numerous research articles concerned with video games, and he's an enthusiast of the craft as much as he is a scholar. Dr. Bowman, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Oh, of course. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it, and it should be a good conversation which I'd like to start us off on a little bit of a broad path because this is such a large topic and unfortunately we do have limited time. So I'd like to get your perspective on the industry as it stands now. For example, let's say someone graduates with a degree related to media and or communication. Where are the opportunities for them? Where do the jobs lie? Sure. So I think the most important thing for folks to realize is that video games are the most economically successful form of entertainment media on earth. And so we tend to think of games as being, you know, computers, people program them, maybe do some artwork, and then they make a video game. And of course, that's still as true today as it was 60 years ago. The difference is the medium itself and the industry around the medium is far larger than just making the game. You've got, you know, games like Grand Theft Auto V had production budgets that top $300 million. So we're seeing an industry that has have products that are larger than your largest Hollywood films and require all of those skill sets. So you think about all of the in-house media crafting that takes place, the, the writing, the shooting, the acting, the voiceovers. Then you have the social media campaigns and the community management and the rollouts. You know, one of the things about a, a game that makes it quite different from a film is that in many ways a game is never finished. So when the developers release it, the player has to finish the game. The player is constantly talking to the developers while they're playing. And then, of course, we're now seeing games that even issue in episodes to where, you know, you have a game that takes place over years of time or something like World of Warcraft that's been going on for, you know, nearly 16 years now. So I think the biggest thing people need to understand or I hope folks realize is that when we talk about games. It is a full on media industry. It takes all of the skills of our previous media industries and adds this additional component of interactivity. So they're all of the jobs you would have found for previous entertainment media, you're also going to find with video games, plus the fact that you have to have these experiences that continue to exist, you know, digitally. Yeah, there really is a job for everybody when you look deep enough. And one thing I thought of when you said that was esports. You know, 
Video games are being broadcast on ESPN these days. There's tournaments for Rocket League and Overwatch and League of Legends, and they end up on ESPN. And they come with fully equipped broadcast teams. They have commentators and reporters and social media teams. I mean, the master's program I'm a part of has a sports media focus, and it prepares you to go out and do those jobs, reporting, social media team, whatever it is, for quote-unquote real sports, you know, baseball, football, basketball. But esports has all the same things. It has all the same requirements and necessities. So in my eyes, it seems like there's just some type of barrier, if you will, that is preventing those professionals of the video game industry, be it a player or an actual employee who is, you know, commentating some type of match, it seems like there's a type of barrier for them where old stigmas are not allowing them to move forward, are not allowing people to view video games as something which can be professional or professionalized. I mean, does that sound accurate to you? You know, I think folks have to remember that at some point all sports were silly, right? Um, if you look at the early history of the National Football League, folks thought it was a joke. You know, people would watch college football and they would watch it pretty passionately. But most of the early players in the 20s and the 30s would never go pro. Going pro was seen as silly. It was like, okay, I played football, I played in college, I played for Notre Dame, time to move on, right? And so, you know, I think like many leisure activities, they're culturally bound. And so for most of us, our stereotype of gaming is going to be a boy in a basement you know, I'm from the Midwest, so I talk about basements and I realize they don't exist in West Texas. <laughs> but, you know, I grew up in my basement playing Sega when it was raining outside, right? And that's what you did. And, you know, it wasn't seen as an overly intellectual, an overly physical, an overly worthy, you know, activity. And when all of us did it, for the most part, we did it because it was raining outside, right? Our parents didn't really understand what we were doing. They didn't care that much because we weren't causing any trouble, and it was just a distraction from the day, right? Um, it's going to take a while for that stereotype to break. I, I think if many, especially, you know, older adults uh, like myself, who, uh, let's say they had not played a video game in 20 years, I think if they picked up the medium today, they would be shocked by what's on screen. And I don't just mean in terms of it being graphic. I mean in terms of it being sophisticated. You know, games that can make you cry. Games that have intense levels of competition. Um, games that can, you know, cause you to rethink, you know, your, your place in the world. Um, the medium is every bit is cognitively and emotionally and physically and socially complex as any other medium out there. And I think to the vast majority of people, they probably still don't quite see that level of precision in gaming. Just like you had kids growing up playing softball, playing volleyball, playing football. You had kids growing up playing, playing you know, Doom, playing Madden. And then, of course, you have esports based on sports, right? So all of this speaks to this larger property of video games just being something that drives a lot of cultural interest. And so all that's to say, not only does it not surprise me, it's definitely not going anywhere. And esports is another avenue where, you know, especially folks, as you mentioned, who want to get into the broadcast industry or want to find ways to get into those type of agencies, that's a good avenue because that area is still developing. Oh, yeah, it's still developing big time. I mean, those broadcasts I'm talking about, yeah, they're on ESPN, but, you know, they're compare a social media team for Rocket League to the MLB, and it's not even close. But 
in terms of development, I think when things are going to get really exciting is when we take the technological advancements and focus them on something like entertainment such as Rocket League or Overwatch. For example, I was watching this video the other day and someone was on a stream. They were using the Oculus Rift, which is a virtual reality headset, and they were flying a fighter plane. It wasn't a game by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, this guy's sitting in his home chair, yes, and he's got these goggles on his face, yes, but the stream he's getting, the feed he's getting from those goggles, looking at the plane in front of him, those controls were mapped out to a T. I, I was exactly what a plane should look like. Not that I've ever sat in one, but he's he's talking me through it as he goes, right? He's flipping all these switches, these dials, these gauges, and it's it's just perfect. He has to do everything right to make this plane fly properly. So if you want to take that to an entertainment, you know, I could see like some races or etc. But what is really exciting about that kind of implementation to me is the educational opportunities. I mean, I was sitting there learning how to fly a fighter plane, literally. So, Dr. Bowman, where else would you say that video games can be used in terms of education? Well, to the note about technology, games have, have always pushed the envelope. And in fact, some people would argue that the very first video games, that was one of their main functions. So in the in 1961, a group of researchers at MIT decided to make a thing called a computer simulation or a video game. And they had three rules. And one was that it would be unique. So every time you turned it on, it would be something different. It would, um, you know, in other words, the user could influence what's on screen. That was a new idea at the time, right? Uh, one idea was that it would be entertaining to the onlookers. It'd be fun to watch. It'd be pleasing. It'd be exciting. And another one they had was that it would test the limits of the machine. And so the idea there is that this technology would showcase every last ounce of processing power of their computers. In some ways, the whole point of making these early games was to basically see how fast they could push their processors. And I point that out because, in a way, gaming has always been an inherent learning experience. How do you program, you know, fiction into reality? How do you convince somebody that they're sitting in an airplane? or that they're standing on another, on another world, or that they're wielding a sword in their hand, or that they're taking on some deep mission, right? Um, and, and of course, many creative media have the same challenge, whether you're a filmmaker, or a comic book artist, or, or a novelist. But the difference with an interactive medium, like a video game or virtual reality, is we can put you there. And we can put you in the impossible, we can put you in the improbable, we can put you in the highly dangerous. And so when you think about learning and simulation, you know, one of the things that we've seen with, with games is that all of a sudden, physicality doesn't matter anymore. You know, the constraints of the world around you are rendered irrelevant when I can put you on screen or put you in the screen. So all of these things that we learn about in our childhood education, in our college education, in our adult education, we can simulate in a reality by placing you there in relative real time. So we actually have a version of this very same cockpit simulator in our, in our lab here at Tech. And it's pretty amazing when you sit down in that cockpit and put the headset on and realize that a plane has three dimensions and you're flying over Lubbock and you see the tower and you see the campus. And these are all things that we can imagine in our minds. We've seen them on camera. 
but we've never touched them before, right? Um, and these lessons last. Um, they, they, they leave a, an impression on us. That leaves a memory trace. In fact, you know, many of the world's pilots and surgeons and heavy machine operators train on simulators for this very reason. Uh, you could develop the muscle memory necessary to operate this equipment. You could even get some of the emotional reactions. So for the first time, when you you don't want your first time getting nervous in an airplane being when you're flying an airplane, right? Right, yeah. Um, yeah, so there's all sorts of things we can do. Um, in fact, the limits don't seem to be technological. They really seem to be more psychological. And now we're trying to figure out how much can the average user handle? In fact, one of the hard parts about some of these experiences is that we program them in a way that sometimes is overtaxing. It's just too much. And as, as media users, we're not used to having this much control over our messages, over our content. And so the, the big difficulty now is making these immersive systems that don't overwhelm the user right away. And so you have to kind of guide them into it. Anybody who's ever played a flight simulator, what you end up doing usually is turning off a lot of the settings when you first start playing. And then as you get used to it, you turn on more of the settings. You turn on more of the settings. And then eventually, of course, you're, you're good. Now, I wouldn't send you over to, you know, to Preston International tomorrow to go fly a jet. But, like, you're on the right track. And there are stories of people who have played, like, racing games and gone on to professional racing careers, uh, the Gran Turismo series. So it's not beyond the pale. And again, it's, you know, technology has always been at the service of education. And I think it's something we forget. And whether it's, you know, real learning, like, like academic learning, or if it's more socio-emotional learning, you know, we've always been there. And, and games are every bit as capable of encouraging these lessons as anything else. In fact, we're, we're starting a program here at Tech where we actually have a, a relatively moderate collection of headsets that we're gonna start uh, letting students check out uh, and borrow for the day, just to get people some experience of this technology. Um, so it's not so much overwhelming that they don't know that they're lost, it's just that it's so novel. You know, it's kind of like the first time you drive a car, there's a reason your parents go with you, right? Because if you're on your own, you're gonna hit something. <laughs> um, it's that level of overwhelming. Um, not to mention, as producers and as creatives, we're still learning the language of VR. We don't quite know how to shoot scenes in 360 degrees. That's not what we're used to doing. We shoot a scene and it's framed right in front of us. Um, and so these are still lessons we're learning. It, it's an exciting time to be part of gaming and VR uh, um, production, gaming and VR research, because um, the questions are largely about people, not about technology. And the answers are going to be coming in the next couple of years. And these are things that I always try to tell my students when working in like a mass communication theory class or one of my research labs. And they wonder like, why can't you just give us the instructions? And, and I tell them, we don't have the answers yet. That, that, that's going to be you, you know, and there's going to be some grad from our program who's going to sort it out. And, um, you know, I joke around that, you know, they're going to break the stock market and I'm just going to ask them to remember me when they're doing donations 10 years down the road. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, but I love what you're saying about how it could be one of our graduates who goes and does something crazy like that because it's it's completely plausible. The industry is just it's changing all the time. It's ripe with opportunity for innovation and let me take you back to a story here real quick. I work in the marketing department for the College Media and Communication. And we were, one of our writers had a story about the certificate we offer in this college, Game Design and Culture Certificate. 
and we usually like to include some images with these stories when we put them on the website. And in our weekly meeting, we were sitting there trying to figure out how we were going to pose these images to go along with the story because the concern was, oh, well, we don't want some parent on the website to see this and think, well, I'm not sending my kid off to college to play video games. Now, the reality is if you go to school for gaming, you're going to play some video games. Oh, sure. But what's important is there are so many different avenues for education, for innovation, for people to really make a stake for themselves. And I think one of the hardest reasons for people to believe that is what I mentioned earlier, old stigmas, old ideas, the fact that, you know, we play video games, that old moniker. So, Dr. Bowman, if you had a chance as a researcher, as a scholar of this stuff, if you could dispel some of those stigmas or some of the ones that really get under your skin the most, you know, what would they be? You know, I think one of the most one of the most prevalent myths about gaming is that it's that it's lonely, lonely, that um, that gamers are socially awkward and socially isolated, and that they don't spend any time doing anything else. And what it does is it results in this stereotype that gamers are just kids with no friends, and that they don't know how to interact. And what's odd to me about that stereotype beyond just what I was mentioning earlier in the podcast where we discussed the fact that so many millions of people play games every day, is that games have been social for a very long time. Uh, The very first video games, in fact, required multiple players. There wasn't an AI to play. There wasn't enough memory to have a computer opponent. You know, in the 70s, you found video games in pubs and bars and nightclubs, and it was people playing with each other and showing off in front of others. You know, in 80s, it was public arcades. Um, it was very common, myself included, for you know your parents to go shopping at the mall. And the first thing we would do was run down to the food court, and I would go run off to the arcade and take my you know $2 allowance and, and play games and hang out with people. And, and that was the public spot. Um, going into the 2000s, you know, we look at online gaming, and we look at the, the sheer number of people who join guilds and clans and play together. Uh, with people from around the world. And then we have Twitch, and we have games streaming, and we have communities online like Reddit where people talk about games. It's a remarkably social activity. We have, you know, conventions devoted to gaming. And and I I think it's unfortunate that there's a stereotype that gamers play games because they can't do anything else. And I think it's, again, going back to just rechecking some of our assumptions about what it means to hang out with people, what it means to be social. So, you know, one of the biggest ones would be the idea that games are not a social activity because they're anything but. In fact, um, you know, you look at modern consoles and they commonly come with four controllers plus, you know, anything you can do online. Um, you, you can scroll through YouTube and find, you know, and one of the things that I think is the most compelling about this stereotype is that when you talk to students, so I do a lot of research on nostalgia in video games, and when you talk to students about the their most nostalgic moments from their past, one of the answers that we got over and over again was playing games with their families. And that was really powerful. And what was even more unique about that answer is that sometimes the game wasn't as important as the fact that it was done with family. And so I had one, one uh, participant in a study who said, you know, her favorite memory from her childhood was Super Mario Kart. And every time she sees a Mario Kart or like hears the music, 
she thinks about her dad because her dad passed away when she was 11. And she's like, you know, I only got a couple years with him. And we would spend a lot of our like weeknights playing Mario Kart. And to her, that was a powerful memory and reminder of who he was. And that's not an uncommon memory. We, we've replicated these findings in three or four different studies. And so, you know, games are social. They're, they're bonding experiences. People have important memories around games. And it shouldn't matter that it's a video game. Therefore, it's not as important of a memory, right? Um, and, and that's something that I'm, I'm excited to see slowly be dispelled. Yeah, certainly. And especially with the last year and a half, however long it's been now with COVID and the world moving to such a digital platform, it's very clear that those types of experiences that take place in a virtual environment are very meaningful. And I think the work of dispelling will kind of take its own course at this point. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that, that's one that, that really gets me. And I think the other myth I would dispel is the idea that games can't be serious. Uh, um, there's, there, there's a notion that, you know, Film and literature, those are serious media, but video games can't be. And I've been doing research on this for, for the better half of, you know, five or six years. And we have a lot of data suggesting that games can be serious. They can be, you know, you know inspiring, thought-provoking, you know, awe-inducing, nostalgic. And as many as, you know, 75% of the people that we interview in our studies We'll talk about having these gaming experiences that were that were more like appreciation or personal meaningfulness, um, and I think that one surprises a lot of people. They're like, "What do you mean a game could be serious?" And then I tell them uh, the story of like Call of Duty World War II, where the very first experience you have is you know your private Red Daniel from Lakeview, Texas, and you're coming off of a, of a floating boat onto the beach in Normandy. And your entire boat is decimated by Nazi gunfire. And you get to the beach and you finally find a place to hide just to collect yourself for a minute. And as you look back into the ocean, you just see, you know, allied boats sinking and explosions everywhere. And you turn around and there's a medic next to you and he yells at you. He's like, private, grab that weapon and get going. And you have to collect yourself, grab a gun and then invade the beach. And, you know, I learned about D-Day in history class. I've read about it. I've watched films about it. I've seen Saving Private Ryan, right? We've all had experience and knowledge of D-Day. Most of us know the facts pretty well, at least from the Allied perspective, right? Like, we know it was an important battle. We know that it eventually led to the downfall of Nazi Germany. We don't often know what it was like, because you can't get that level of interactivity in a book. And so I'm playing this game and I'm dying. I, I can't figure out how to get up the beach. And it takes me a good 20 minutes to figure out how to go station to station and get low and read the gunfire. And I imagine what it must have been like to invade that beach as a kid from Texas who just joined the army and is now stuck on a boat and if you're in the game, you're talking about your girlfriend, like right before you get off. That was all intentional. And that wasn't violence for violence sake. They weren't trying to show you how cool video games are with bullets. This is a first person shooter where you're reenacting history and history is taking place around you every day, every moment you're playing. And talk about a level of appreciation for what must have happened. 
And there are more and more games that are doing this where they contextualize the violence or they contextualize the gameplay to where, you know, sometimes you're reenacting a historical scene. Sometimes you're the villain and you have to make choices that are morally deep and you have to think about those choices. Um, Sometimes the games, you know, make you feel bad about yourself. You know, you do something in a game that you wouldn't do in real life and the game judges you for that. That's pretty neat, you know, and again, the, the medium has matured. It's not that we don't have fun games. It's that it's now acceptable to make a broad range of experiences for every palette. And one of those is the serious or moral or meaningful game. And for folks who are listening who haven't played these games yet, they're, they're pretty powerful. Uh, they're, they're, they're pretty engaging. And I've definitely had some experiences in games that I've not had watching movies. Oh, 100%. And specifically with that D-Day mission, I played that. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I remember every time I died trying to get up, I was like, wow, that represents a dead soldier. That's exactly the point. That, yeah. that represents someone that we as a country lost trying to get that beach. That's kind of how I interpreted it, to be honest. When I, and it's funny you said that because when I was playing, that's exactly what went through my mind. I was like, I'm 20 dead privates. That, that's an experience that doesn't go away. And I'm waiting for, you know, our leaders and older adults to recognize that. Like, I can imagine a history curriculum where you do play through, you know, the first level of Call of Duty World War II. And it's just an example. And that's not even the best example. It's just one that I played last night. There's, there's others, right? And they're, they're increasingly commonplace. And so games are as diverse as film as comics, as novels. Um, and that's something that I'm looking forward to folks realizing. When you go to Best Buy and you walk down the games aisle, you're not just seeing a bunch of toys. You're seeing a bunch of narrative experiences that can be pretty darn powerful. And we have the data and the theory and the understanding to back this up. And we're only just beginning to tell those stories. So you mentioned the diversity compared to novels and video games. And I focus on the novel because uh, writing is a big part of my life. That's what I like to do. And the first thing that comes to my mind when I try to think about jobs is certainly not video games, but you need people to develop those narratives. You need writers. You need a full team of creatives to make these projects happen and make them suitable for the public. Oh, sure. You know, keep in mind, Stan Lee is so well-known. Stanley wasn't an artist. He was a writer. And I think a lot of folks forget that. A lot of folks think, oh, Marvel Comics, Stan Lee. And he's one of my personal heroes. He wasn't an artist. You know, he was a writer. And the gaming industry needs those creatives um, more than ever before. They need those writers. They need those storytellers. Um, they need those creative media folks who they don't necessarily have to know how to put the game together to know how to tell a good story. And it's not going anywhere. That's probably my, my third myth is that it's a fad. You know, if it's a fad, it's a really long-standing fad. <laughs> um, and, and it's overtaken. I, I, think, I think games have made more than Hollywood for going back at least 10 years, if not more. Um, we're looking at a global industry. It's, it's expected to be, you know, a uh, half trillion dollars. Um, at the end of the day, it's a lot of bang for its buck. And if you think about the amount of value you can extract out of a video game, um, you know, and, you know, it's not going to be too long before it's just a normal mundane, you know, your, your, your kids in a, a third grade English course and they end up playing Romeo and Juliet, the video game. And they're in a fifth grade history class and they've 
just play through Sun Shu's Art of War. And that's just going to be normal. Um, and it's going to be cool. I mean, I grew up watching Magic School Bus and Miss Frizzle taking us through the human body on her shrinking bus. And that was really fun. But it'd be pretty cool if I could drive the bus. And that's where we're going right. today. Oh my gosh, how crazy would that be? First person in the Magic School Bus when you like go into space or into the bloodstream or something. Oh, I would pay so much money for that. You don't even right. know. <laughs> but while we're on the topic of myths here, there's one more thing I wanted to touch on, and that's the classic violent video games cause aggressive children or violent children. And I think the problem there is that, and I said this earlier, but you know, you play video games. The narrative is you're playing video games. Right. So if you say, I'm going to go play a game, right? That should be something fun and light and you enjoy it. Well, all of a sudden your mom walks into the room and it's Grand Theft Auto Five, where you're just like running around town on a rampage. Sure. So the playing, I think, is what mixes people up a lot. But one of my video- favorite video games I've ever played was Battlefield 1. And this kind of goes back to the war discussion because that's a game about World War One. But the reason it was one of my favorite games was the simply immersive experience. As a person who loves history, especially military history, it was so cool to be riding on a horse like through the desert with a sword in my hand because that was war back then. I mean, they were they had their guns, they had their machines, but there were still people on horses because that was the era, 1917, you know? And then you got the problem of like other media kind of hijacking the stereotype of video games, movies, right? They always portray some bully kid wearing all black with his spiky frosted tipped hair and he's playing some video game when his mom comes in that's just violent and screaming and then he's a bully right so it just seems like it's an unfair portrayal a lot of the time well those myths came from so so yeah the the final myth is the the notion that gaming violence begats violence and it it comes from the 70s uh there was a game called death race where players took control of a car and could run over humanoid-looking gremlins, and you got points running them over. And you had a steering wheel and pedal, you know, gas and pedal and shifter. It was basically a functional car, right? And there was a lot of fear around this game. Um, You know, people called it a murder simulator. And the game itself was an unlicensed satire of the movie Death Race 2000 with David Carradine. I think a lot of folks missed that part. Um, it was meant to be kind of a rip of a of a movie that was a dystopian science fiction where people race across the United States and earn you know points for the brutality of the of the pedestrians they kill. And it was a '70s sci-fi had a lot of violence. A lot of times, it told stories about dystopian futures and and post-capitalist societies and, and, and you know pretty heavy stuff and. So anyway, the game gets released, and the game is just run over things. It doesn't really have any of the heavier narrative back because games in the 70s didn't have heavier narratives backs. It freaked out parents. It freaked out policymakers. Um, That game essentially cemented, I think, in popular U.S. culture, the connection between video game violence and video games. Now, we have to be careful because, of, of course, there is a lot of ridiculous violence in video games, like lots of media. Um, and like lots of media, there is research showing that there are really strong, so a really, really weak but significantly significant associations between watching a violent film or playing a violent game or reading a violent book and having aggressive thoughts, right? 
Um, where the research falls apart, though, is that we don't really see any, we don't see much evidence of that mattering long term. So, for example, there isn't any research that has connected playing a violent game to committing an act of violence. You know, that's not to say that an individual person somewhere may not have done it before. But of course, in those scenarios, there's often a lot more going on besides, you know, doom wasn't the trigger, so to speak. Something else right. was the trigger, right? Yeah. We get the we we generally see that even in the non-contextualized beat them up, shoot them up, kick them up, the thing that really seems to cause aggression is actually losing. Uh, yeah, um, no kidding. Yeah, it, it, it's actually it's called the frustration aggression hypothesis, and it said, no, I lost. And when I lose around other people, I'm mad and I'm embarrassed and I lash out, right? So, so the research is really not that supportive of the idea that uh, aggressive and violent games have any stronger of an effect on aggression or violence than any other form of media. And in fact, in many cases, the link between gaming and aggression is slightly smaller than the link between watching and aggression. And that's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, interesting for sure. A whole lot of interesting stuff in this conversation. It's been a really great time. Unfortunately, uh, we are out of time here now. Uh, thank you so much for everything, Dr. Bowman, all the comments, all the knowledge. Do you have anything else you want to add before we head out here? No, that covers a lot of it. Good deal. Well, again, thank you so much. It was a great, great pleasure. Likewise, we'll be in touch, okay? Yes, sir, I will. Well, all right, everyone, that'll do it for another episode of On Communication. Thank you all for tuning in, and once more, a big thank you to Dr. Bowman. This has been James Loss for On Communication. I hope you all learned something today, because I know I did.